Hey, welcome to Conversations with my dear friend, Jeff Conway. My name is Susan. This is A Different Kind of Walk. Hello. Hi there. Hi, Carolyn. I'm Jeff. Nice to meet you. Jeff, glad to meet you too. Well, I tell you, I'm just, I was giddy about the book. I'm I'm giddy about being here today and you sharing your time with us. But I grew up in Oregon. Okay. I'm on Vancouver Island. Really? Yeah. I hear everything's expensive on Vancouver Island now. It is. They say that BC means bring cash is the joke. Uh, <laughs> Okay, there you go. That's it. Susan, tell me to be quiet and and start <laughs> recording, and I'll be as good as I can be, which you know isn't great, but I'll try my best. Hey, everyone. In this episode, we'll be talking a lot about a man named Henry Nowen. Henry Nouwen was a Catholic priest from the Netherlands who became a famous spiritual writer and speaker and a university professor here in the States at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard. Here's a short clip of him speaking at the famous Crystal Cathedral in California. I'm really grateful to be with you here this morning and to share my face with you. And to the core of that face belongs my conviction that you and that I and that we are the beloved daughters and sons of God. When Nouwen left academia, he went to live with and serve people with intellectual disabilities at a L'Arche community near Toronto, Canada. And we'll explain more about L'Arche in a little bit. Oddly enough, in the last five years of his life, Henry Nouwen befriended a small group of trapeze artists, and he wanted desperately to write a creative nonfiction book about them, saying that it would be the most important work he'd done. And yet, he never truly got started on it. So to talk about that, we are joined by the writer Carolyn Whitney Brown, who was a close friend of Nouwen's. Framed by the true story of Nowen being rescued out a hotel window during his first heart attack, Carolyn's recent book, Flying, Falling, Catching, incorporates his unpublished writings about his friendship with the trapeze group, the Flying Rodleys, and gives a glimpse of Henry Nowen as a whole person. So welcome, Carolyn. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. This is fun. My first question is about the Larsh community. So... If you could describe for our listeners what that is and what first brought your family to the large community in 1990, who all was there, um, what your responsibilities were there, and did you know Henry Nowen before that? Yeah. And what's your favorite color? <laughs> what's my Enneagram? <laughs> <laughs> what else can I add into that huge question? Yeah. <laughs> Enneagram five, probably. Uh, so my husband, Jeff, and I were finishing Ivy League doctorates. I was doing it hardcore Shakespeare. He also was doing Renaissance literature. And we were in 
England for a year doing research. And we started to realize, this was in the late 1980s, that we really were thinking about what we wanted to do when we retired and we were still in our 20s. So we thought maybe our, our career direction wasn't quite right. And we started to pray and think about that. We'd held leadership positions in various Christian communities. And we took a year and lived in different Christian communities in England and mm. Wales. And we we did 30-day silent retreats. And at the end of that year, we'd also visited um, a large community. And we really felt excited and interested in L'Arche in the sort of quirky marginalized world of L'Arche where people with and without intellectual disabilities live in in homes together and create homes for each other. L'Arche was founded in the early 1960s in France originally and spread around the world quite quickly and it was quite radical in the 60s because there was before group homes or community living. So mm -hmm. to actually live together, it it was the early stages of deinstitutionalizing people with intellectual disabilities. So it was very, very radical. And it attracted people like us, and it still does, attracting people who want not only to live something different, live something more in line with their values, but also reflect on it. Larsh has a kind of culture of self-reflection and thinking about the larger implications of, of, of what we're living. And so during that year, we heard that Henry Nouwen had moved from teaching at Harvard to Larsh. So we wrote to him because yeah. we too were going to be moving from pretty high level academia to and thinking of going to Larsh. So we started to exchange letters. So when we arrived in 1990, we had exchanged letters. We didn't go to Larsh because of Henry, but uh, coming home to Canada was the right place to come. It was the nearest L'Arche community to our families. But it was certainly exciting to get to know Henry. And so we arrived, Jeff, my husband is named Jeff. Jeff and I arrived um, pregnant with our first child and had two more children during the uh, seven years. We lived at L'Arche Daybreak, just north of Toronto. Wow, that is quite a story. So this you're living in community with different people, can you give me a word picture of what a day would look like? Yeah, I, we went through several different roles. Initially, I was head of the seniors club. There's a retirement program, but also trying to give the older people in the community a sense of ownership. It was called their club, the seniors club. And we we actually did very normal senior stuff. We went bowling. We played bingo. Um, some of the people went to art club. Basically, we sat around and told stories and developed that kind of in-group humor that groups that get together a lot have. And we would have these jokes that would just we would just fall off our chairs laughing every day at the same jokes in the way that humor just gets deeper and deeper if you just keep sharing it. We ate baked cookies. Um, and one of the things we really enjoyed was having visitors from the community. So Henry would come for tea frequently and other members of the community and anyone visiting former assistants in the community, former members of the community would come for tea and we'd host them and tell stories and hear about their lives. So that was the daytime program, which I did most of my time there. And then towards the end, after my last maternity leave with our third child, I moved to work in the woodworking shop 
and we did various contracts to build just all sorts of things under contract. Um, so when Henry died, he had asked, not expecting to die anytime soon, he'd sort of tossed off years before that when he died that the woodery should make him a casket. And he died rather suddenly. So, But I then happened to be working in the woodworking shop when Henry died. So I was part of designing and building his casket. Mm. And as you know from the book, he had, being Henry and never doing anything by halves, he had, um, in the end, uh, two funerals, two burials, and three caskets. So, very nice. Well, <laughs> I have one jar. <laughs> it's an alabaster jar that's going into the ocean off Cape Cod. But, yeah, wow. So, now, Carolyn, you keep saying... Henry, and I've heard people say Henri. Did was he just called Henry? He was called Henry. I think when he moved to the U.S. in the 1960s, that he likely just got tired of people trying desperately to pronounce his name badly, and just moved it to Henry Nowen. Okay. <laughs> And there was a point when my family calls me Carrie and, and and he wanted to be able to call me Carrie. And he got really excited that his family called him Harry and that he could call me Carrie and I could call him Harry. <laughs> he did end up calling me Carrie, but I flinched. I did not call Henry Harry. I just couldn't quite do it. But it is true. I've, I, you know, as I got to know his family, they did call him Harry. Yeah, I mean, that says something about who he is. You know, I you put him on a pedestal a little bit, kind of a step away from you that you can never touch. But he doesn't seem to be that person at all, and that's why I enjoyed your book so much. One of the things I loved as I started to explore this story is how it changed my mental image of what a pedestal looked like, of having Henry on a pedestal. Mm. If, if you look online, we've posted some of the video from Rodley himself, from the Flying Rodley's Trapeze Troop, and you can actually see Henry standing on a pedestal, and Rodley grabs him around the waist and kicks his feet out from under him and throws him off to swing <laughs> on a trapeze. And and it really struck me, that's what friends do. Tra pedestals, they're not somewhere you're supposed to stay. If right. I'm silly wow. just standing around on a pedestal, and you shouldn't be there by yourself. Um, and you should, and real friends will throw you off a pedestal. And it, it just gave me a whole different sense of when people say they had Henry on a pedestal, I'm thinking, yeah, and his real friends tossed him off frequently. Yeah. And, and yeah. he didn't want to be on a pedestal alone. So tell folks so just a little bit so they'll get excited and they'll want to go out and buy your book and um, <laughs> about the troop. Yeah. So in 1980, I should say 1981. Henry was trying to write his book, Life of the Beloved. Um, and he had his book about the return of the prodigal son was in print. It was just about to be published. So he'd sort of done a 10-year process of working with that Rembrandt painting and was kind of in transition for, for what was next. He'd been enlarged for five years. He he was really thinking about what it would mean for each of us to claim more deeply that we're beloved. Uh, that was incredibly important to him. He was talking about that all the time. And he went to a traveling circus when he was in Germany. 
with his father, with his aged father, and Henry was in his late 50s. And they went to this this uh, traveling circus, and he was absolutely mesmerized by the Flying Rodleys. So the Flying Rodleys trapeze troupe toured uh, with a traveling circus in mainly Germany and, and some in Holland in the 1980s and 90s. And they were they were quite famous. They 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 were really really good. And Rodley Stevens uh, was the head of it. And Henry got so excited he went to see them again. And then he managed to introduce himself to them. And they were kind of amused by him and invited him to come to one of their practices. And he went that week that they were in in Freiburg. He went to all their practices and all their performances. And by the end of the week, he really felt like they were friends and they did too. And they kept up a correspondence. He went back and traveled with them for a week, staying with one of them in their traveling van, caravan, uh, and then later rented his own and traveled with them in this absolutely terrifying, fabulous way and wrote, wrote a journal thing about him. So they were really friends, like genuinely friends, really valued each other, really knew each other. That is the backbone of this book, is Henry's friendship with five trapeze artists, two, three men, two women, learning about the flying trapeze, flying, catching, the whole dynamic of it all in motion in the air, but also in motion going from city to city. Yeah, one of the joys of this book was getting to know Rodley Stevens, the head of the Flying Rodleys, because he was, of course, much younger than Henry. He and I are about the same age. Mm -hmm. um, so he's still alive and was super helpful. Yeah, it seemed like it. And just to go back to the book for a minute, it was after Henry died, Rodley wrote a little memoir that was never published called What a Friend We Had in Henry. And he starts out the way that I start my book then by describing going to Henry's funeral and hearing one of the speakers talk about Henry as, as anguished and wounded and feeling like he just wanted to go up and interrupt this really renowned person to say, no, no, that's, that's not all of Henry. We had a whole different experience. He was relaxed. He was funny. He was delightful. He was wise. He was insightful. Uh, we enjoyed him so much. And when I read that, it, uh, that, that really was one of the points at which I thought, yeah, I can write a book. I can do something with Henry's material because the Rodley's experience of him was, was closer to my own. Mm -hmm. And, I'm not saying Henry was certainly anguished at times. Anyone who knew him knew that. He carried deep wounds. He could be incredibly demanding, not in a rude way, just because he was demanding of himself and he wanted people around him to live up to all of his good ideas and help carry through everything he didn't have time to do. So to be friends with Henry, you really had to learn to say no, because otherwise <laughs> he could just take over your life. All that was true, but... It was also so worth it because he was just a delightful friend. He was creative. Mm. He was funny. He was always eager for something new. He, there was just a, an energy in him that was just such a pleasure and so much fun. Mm -hmm. And so when I when I read that of Rodley and read his memoir, I thought, yeah, I, I can write this book because it, it's it catches something of Henry that could get lost as people who knew him well 
um, start to, we start to lose them. We can, mm -hmm. we can lose that, that, that sweet, funny joy of Henry. Um, how long did it actually take you to put the book together? And was it a joy? Was it pain? Was, what was it like to go through personal things of someone that you had known, but who was no longer alive? Henry's unpublished trapeze writings were kind of a mythic thing. Uh, I think everyone who knew him well knew that he had tried to write something, that he'd gotten these books about creative writing, and that somewhere, you know, in his archives were un was unpublished stuff. And so when the Nowen Literary Group came to me in 2017 and asked if I would have a look at it and see if I could do something with it, I was really excited. I expected a lot more than there was. Hmm. But in the end, all that was unpublished there were these two chapters of a potential book that were in some ways rather effortful because he was trying to write something according to the creative nonfiction writing books that he was reading. Mm -hmm. And they covered the first week of getting to know the Flying Rodleys. And that's all there was. There were also the journal entries when he traveled with them later, which had already been published in a British journal. And then I had to really dig to find what else there was. There were interviews. There was a, a film made. There were bits of book outlines. There were fragments in journals, but there was not an unpublished manuscript. Mm -hmm. So that's where I got stuck for a little while because like others before me, I, I'd thought there'd be enough that I could create the book that Henry had in mind. Mm -hmm. And what became really clear is that Henry didn't get that far, that mm -hmm. it was still very much in process that he was really passionate about wanting to write something, never let go of this intuition that there was something really, really valuable here. But when he died, he didn't, he hadn't really gotten much further. Mm -hmm. And so what came to me real clearly was that I could tell the story though, that it was a great, great story. Mm -hmm. of Henry getting to know these people. And again, this, this weird fact that as he has this heart attack, he got taken out through a window and somehow that just captivated me that he does a final flight. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I found it interesting. He had written around 50 books and yet he went and grabbed other books on like how do you write creative writing as though as though like he didn't know how to write <laughs> I thought yeah, that was very Henry funny. he was always eager for a new experience always eager to learn he wasn't arrogant he was always quite excited about learning something new quite excited about learning something from anyone and and yeah it made him in some ways it made me miss him in a whole new way mm. uh, and in other ways it brought brought me close to him again in a really nice way um it was it was a really delightful privilege to to work on this project it was it was pretty fun mm. jeff that part about taking over your life sounds a little bit like you and your fraternity friends <laughs> getting them to push you on the camino de santiago oh no <laughs> um, but don't you actually have another coincidental similarity to henry Nowen? something about the picture on the back cover so one of those fraternity brothers that helped push me mm -hmm. uh, was in the University of Oregon uh, party picture of the week with me. And it was 
uh, six friends holding me in the same position that Henry was in the back of your book. Um, They're all holding me up and I'm leaning to the side. And that's the first picture. And the next picture is when they all move their hands and I'm flying through the air. (laughs) So I don't know if there's a paperback version of the book and and the picture is different, but I have the hardcover and can you describe, because I'm thinking how to describe that, the troop holding him up? The picture that you're referring to is, is it's fantastic. It's hilarious. They, the trapeze troop have lifted Henry in their arms. He's lying sideways, looking absolutely in bliss. And he's angular and skinny and awkward and tall. And they are in their, clearly in their performance outfits with the men with bare chests and the women with bare thighs. So very beautiful, muscular, fleshy people holding this very awkward and ecstatic looking Henry. And and on Uh the left of the photo is his very good friend, Frank Hamilton, who was a chaplain in the US military, looking equally kind of awkward, but willing. So (laughs) the the whole combination of, of the, of the trapeze artists so at home in their own half naked bodies. And and then Henry and his friend, Frank sort of, you know, just so thrilled, so thrilled looking. Well, Henry so thrilled, um, Frank looking earnest. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I almost said, and he looks so awkward, you know, because he's Presbyterian, but I didn't say that because I, I didn't realize you're Presbyterian. I'm glad I didn't say that. He's a Presbyterian. Oh, I would have loved for you. Get that in there somewhere. <laughs> Don't lose that, Susan. That's great. When I was reading the book, I was carrying it around the house, and my son, who is 10, saw the picture and was like, what is that? <laughs> well, the first time I saw the photo, I just couldn't stop laughing because I had never seen. This was after Henry had died, and I had never seen. I'd never really visualized how very fleshy this this whole performance would be. Yeah. Um, Of course, you know, they wore very, you know, sparkly, minimal outfits and, and they're muscular and gorgeous. Yep. And, and it really does it, it, the photo, I, I love it too, because what Henry's struggling with and trying to write about them is questions that he has about, you know, what is an enfleshed spirituality? Mm -hmm. Um, And the photo really catches yeah, this is about real flesh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Carolyn, you said that you had a question for Jeff in that regard. Do you want to say that or do you want me to just read what you wrote? I I could say it. Jeff, are you game for this? Did did you get warned about this? Uh no. Okay. So mm-hmm. so give it your best, Jeff. <laughs> so just in July 1996, so just a couple months before Henry died, he saw the Flying Rodleys for the last time. And he wasn't ill. I mean, his he died of a heart attack that was sudden and very, very unexpected. He was only 64 years old. And what he said, and he saw them perform, and he, he writes in his journal, I hadn't expected that I would be so moved seeing the Rodleys again, but I found myself crying as I saw them flying and catching under the circus cupola. As I watched them in the air, I felt some of the same profound emotions that I felt when I saw them for the first time with my father in 1991. It is the emotion hard to describe, 
but it is the emotion coming from the experience of an enflushed spirituality. Body and spirit are fully united. The body in its beauty and elegance expresses the spirit of love, friendship, family, and community, and the spirit never leaves the here and now of the body. Mm. And I, I keep thinking about that phrase, the experience of an enfleshed spirituality. It's not just an idea of it, but something in the trapeze gave him an experience of something. But Jeff, you've got a whole different kind of enfleshed spirituality going on. And I just found myself really curious. Does that feel idealistic and remote? Does that feel very moving? Does your flesh change your spirituality? Totally. Completely. So I was a Presbyterian pastor and worked in Presbyterian churches for 35 years, but I'm now going to an Episcopalian church because my electric wheelchair can get me there. So when I talk about receiving Christ's body every week, that was not a part of the Presbyterian tradition, but is a part of Episcopalian Church of England Anglican tradition. And I'm absolutely loving it uh, because as we receive the body of Christ every week into our bodies and how important that is to me now, uh, it's not God floating far away. It's not just something, a philosophy in my head. It truly is knowing how loved I am by God as I receive that body of Christ each week and how that's a part of what's going on with my body also. So my left leg right now is fireworks, uh, which means I have the ripples of the muscles, uh, just the way I'm laying in this couch right now, uh, going all the way down to my foot, which is turning into my body. And so I'm a person of joy on the Enneagram, so I shouldn't like pain. I shouldn't like challenge. I want to just keep it happy. But I'm just fascinated watching my body and watching the ripples and watching the pulls with the cramps. Um, and, you know, I have to do things at times, push my leg into something so it can stop because it does still hurt, even though I'm on about eight different medicines, but uh, Jesus is right there as my left foot is pulling over towards the right side, understanding me and certainly me understanding Jesus in a deeper way because of what's happening to my body. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, it seemed to me as I was reading the book that Henry was really interested in the idea. And we get, I get this from Richard Rohr as well. The idea that the sacred and secular don't have to be separate. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. That there truly is no separation. As you move along, as you grow in all this, you can start to actually see the sacred in just about anything. And I think honestly, that's kind of what it sounded like when you were talking about, like when I look at my leg, 
and it's and I'm just like fascinated by these ripples. It's this beautiful spiritual practice if you can find the sacred inside of that very fleshly right thing that you would even say is wrong. There's there's something wrong with your leg, and yet you can find something holy about it. I'm glad you didn't ask the question right now. What? Why? What are you doing? Um, my rump is on fire with <laughs> ripples. <laughs> I can't get my butt to like stop <laughs> wiggling. <laughs> so yeah, I'm glad it was my leg that was really moving when you asked that question. We want to see some cures. We want to see some changes. We want to see some products. We want to see something new happening because of us. But Jesus never asked us to be productive. Jesus asked us to be fruitful. And a fruit comes out of a broken ground. When we become vulnerable, broken, naked, disarmed, we can trust that fruits will be born. That was an excerpt of Henry Nouwen speaking at a 1986 conference called Roots of Christian Conscience. So Carolyn, for my last question, I just want to ask, what are your hopes for this book? I really want the book to reach people who have also never heard of Henry and who maybe wouldn't pick up a spiritual book, mm. who just really like a good story. I mean, it's not a murder mystery. Someone dies, but there's no mystery about it. But <laughs> someone who just likes reading a, a good and kind of quirky story and likes that it's that it's a real story that mm. that while i had to embellish certain parts or try to guess or or read into things and the ends have notes so you know exactly what's henry's words what are my words where i got these ideas that it's not invented out of nothing um but someone who wants just a good story you know he was in his late 50s and suddenly decided to travel around with a trapeze troupe and you know, it's just a, a a fun story of never getting too old to try something new, of trying to dig deeper into the meaning of, of what you experience. And what I, I love, too, is it all starts with an experience that's really physical for him. He, he watches this physical performance and he has a response in his whole body. He cries. He, he trembles with excitement. Like it's a it's a bodily experience that he tries to untangle so the book doesn't start from an idea the book starts from an experience and i think that makes it really accessible right and and what's great too is that henry then tries to figure out the experience he's had but he wants to tell it as a story he doesn't mm -hmm. want to just turn it into his thoughts or insights he wants the reader to have the experience he had I was expecting a Henry Nouwen book, a lot of theology and 
visual imagery of the spiritual journey that's going to come out of this. And then I I realized this was just going to be a fun story. Yeah. And what, what he weaves into it though, in his journals and all is, is that he is getting all sorts of really interesting theological and personal insights. The whole thing he discovers about flying and catching that the flyer has to just stretch out their hands and trust that the catcher will be there if the flyer tries to grab the catcher they'll break their wrists that the flyer just gets caught the catcher catches and also getting to know the catcher all the tiny minutiae things that the catcher's attentive to attentive to everything so the timing works out perfectly and also the wisdom of the catcher to realize you know, sometimes the the uh, flyers start out a little too late, a little too slow, a little too high, a little too low. They can't catch them. And the safest thing is to let them fall safely into the net. So the kind of wisdom of the catcher about what to how to respond to what's happening spontaneously with this whole thing in motion. And then Henry's growing confidence about failure, I found, too, in those five years that he becomes a lot more brave for the first time he watches the flying Rodleys perform after he's met them. Remember, he's just in in agony because one of the flyers falls into the net. And then, you know, with thousands of people watching this very public failure, and she just climbs up the ladder and they do the that they do that piece again, which is what they do. And she doesn't think that much of it, but Henry's just in this agony of of watching her and feeling, you know, public humiliation and and all this kind of projection he is so much more afraid of failure at that point than they are and they model something for him of just trying something and if it fails you try again and if someone else fails you assume the best next time you can't carry that resentment or anxiety into the next performance like it said so much to him about community life about how we carry on together um and then the way they work together, and he talks a lot about that they're having fun together, that this is, that they really exude fun. Right. So, and, and he talks about whether Jesus is the greatest entertainer, what entertainment means, whether being a priest is is the role, is a, a role of being an entertainer and what that means. Like he has so many levels that come out of this experience where he's reflecting uh, on the meaning of it all. But every time, he, as I could see from his outlines, every time he tried to write a book, just distilling the meaning of it, he, it wasn't what he wanted to write. He just... Right. <laughs> so you have been an absolute delight. To, thank you for spending this time with us. Uh, it's been a privilege. Thank you. My heart is filled with joy with this body, and my heart was filled with joy as I read the book because it just smelled like joy and smelled like God all over the place. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, wow. Um, I like to say that writing a book, I've discovered it, it really is like sending out, you know, one of your grown kids into the world to sort uh, of go make friends and you hope they develop intimate relationships that you never will hear about. And, mm -hmm. you, but it's really nice every once in a while and you get a message back saying that, you know, this book's out there making its own friends and having a good time out there in the world. So it's been really a thrill to hear from you. Oh, good. Good. 
Thanks for joining us for A Different Kind of Walk. I also want to say thank you to the Henry Nowen Society for the use of their audio clips. Also, you can find the book Flying, Falling, Catching by Carolyn Whitney Brown in all of the normal places that you would look for a book. We wish you all a very Merry Christmas. And until next time, live well.